Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and you're very welcome to the Mick Clifford podcast. Now the election campaign is entering the home straight. And I think it's fair to say we're still not seeing any major discernible patterns that could mean that it's totally unpredictable or simply that I haven't a clue what's going on. One way or the other, here to help us read the runes this morning is Jared Howland, formerly an advisor to Bertie Ahern in government and currently a public affairs consultant and Irish examiner columnist. Jerry, what do you think of the campaign so far? I think it's uh, low key. I don't think it's caught fire. Uh, it's a campaign unlike any other that I can remember is I don't hear a buzz in the streets. I don't hear much talk of it in my circle. Now, maybe I need to get out more, Mick. Uh, but um, it, it's one, I think, that is uh, on a low wattage. Which, in in light of certainly in terms of the noise and to some extent around it, it would appear, and there certainly is anecdotal evidence and empirical evidence, that a lot of people are not feeling the boom, that in particular the area of housing, particularly generationally, in terms of people being unable to afford homes and being forced to pay huge rents, you would have thought that would have fed into um, into the campaign. To an extent, but the other side of the coin is that there is, a, if not a boom, there's certainly a recovery. Um, and, you know, unemployment is way down. Many more people uh, are going to work and, you know, our traffic problem, which is a downside of that, is, is one example. Uh, and all the figures from, you know, the Dublin airport passenger numbers to sales in shops indicate that more and more people are at work and doing a bit better, certainly significantly better than they were during the crash. There is an overhang, however. So because many more people are going to work, uh, wages are, are chasing houses and accommodation, uh, we, we have a housing crisis. Separately but connected, uh, we have a homelessness crisis. The two should not be uh, always mixed in together, though they are connected. And certainly I think that issue of educated, employed people who have money in their pocket, who have a status that uh, would have led them to expect uh, you know, a decent apartment at a reasonable rent at best or a, a mortgage, uh, they are deeply disappointed. And I think more to the point for the two bigger parties, their parents are deeply disappointed on their behalf. And I think that though that cohort of people, uh, educated, employed, um, a sense of themselves for whom things are not delivering as they might have wished. I, I think that is having an impact, certainly, on, on the Fine Gael poll numbers. And I think then more widely, because the Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael parental thing is passing a little with each election, uh, 
Um, there's more uh, and more people who are uncommitted to anything uh, except what they decide in the last days of the campaign. Do you think that has fed into the um, hike in Sinn Féin's numbers over the last couple of weeks, the poll numbers certainly? Mm. I think it may well have and I am hearing um, and I'm of a certain age where I have friends of my own age who have children in college and certainly they are hearing from their kids and that cohort that some of those people uh, are thinking or talking at least about voting Sinn Féin. So that's a fairly new development because there wasn't a space in which Sinn Féin would have had much of a presence historically. Let's see on Saturday week whether that holds and whether they turn out. There would have been a school of thought prior to the campaign starting that that cohort you're talking about would have been attracted in greater numbers towards the Green Party, but that doesn't seem to be materialised. Well, you see, when you're polling uh, smaller parties, uh, it becomes more difficult because what matters most is not their national number, but where they are with a particular candidate in a particular constituency. So Labour at the current time is a classic example of that. They may be at 4 or 5% in opinion polls, but only thing that matters for Labour is where are 10 candidates in 10 constituencies. And those polls are not necessarily the best guides at that. Going back to Sinn Féin and the Greens, I don't think the Greens have had the best campaign possible. I don't think they've had a bad one, by the way, but I don't think uh, Eamon Ryan has delivered uh, above his weight uh, in the debate so far. I think there have been a few missteps, small ones, and my question is, will the green tide be as strong on election day as it was a few weeks ago? Yeah, and just one element to that, Jerry. the... the as you know, there's a sense in what we might call midterm election here, local mm. elections, European elections, that people, for example, in terms of the green issue, that they said, oh, yes, you know, I'm in favour of greens. They, they voted emotionally to some extent. Mm. And yet when it comes around to the general election, is there anything to it that if we are to go down the route of accepting climate change as it is presented to us and the measures that are required, that people are still not willing to face up to the changes in standards of living in various ways that will be necessary and therefore that the Greens have a dilemma there and it would also seem that the main parties are not talking straight in terms of what's required in that regard. No, uh, in fairness to the Greens, I, I think they are talking straight oh, and yeah, have the done are, yeah. consistently for a very long time. And of course, part of the Green Tide is a European context. You know, They just went into government in Austria a few weeks ago with a centre-right party would be roughly equivalent uh, to, to Fine Gael here. Uh, they are in, I believe, 12 of the 16 state governments in, 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 in Germany, many of which are much bigger than a small country like Ireland. And with the demise of the Social Democrats in, in Germany, they are poised after the German election to perhaps be a go- a federal government partners with the, with the, with the Christian Democrats in, in Berlin. So there's big context. So they're not proposing stuff or policies uh, that isn't on the mainstream agenda in big uh, European countries. The problem here is we are way behind the curve, not just in policy or in, even in politics, but in terms of culture. So you look at those young people who have been protesting and are, who are genuinely really, really concerned about this. By and large, many of them were driven to school as youngsters. They didn't walk, they didn't cycle, they were driven by parents. If you go into their houses and open their fridge or their bathroom cupboard, you see the lifestyle that is destroying the planet. Those houses, by the way, where those fridges and bathroom cupboards are to be found, have virtually uh, no 
property tax to speak of by European standards. They, they certainly, as we know, don't have water charges. Uh, they don't have carbon charges. They're probably not energy efficient. And while their parents may be... Uh, warmed, as it were, uh, by the idealism of their progeny and offspring. Uh, there's no sign, and I know their parents for a long time, I've studied them closely, Michael, uh, there's no sign that they're prepared to pay up for their children's aspirations. And that's the key, isn't it? Like, they, they, as you say, culturally, we're, so, we're still so far behind in that regard, notwithstanding what appeared to be somewhat of a green wave in the, the local yeah, But it's, senti- it's sentiment. And uh, when sentiment meets reality and policy and charges and taxes and huge changes in lifestyle, which, by the way, there will be winners and huge opportunities. I mean, Eamon Ryan is fundamentally right about that. But it requires deep dislocation and that requires challenging vested interests and that requires bloody civil war in political terms. So we're, we're not ready for that yet? No, not at all. And so let's see what comes out uh, of the election, uh, what the green numbers are, how those numbers do or do not add on to the numbers that the bigger of the two big parties have. Where is Labour, the Social Democrats at all? Is a long-tailed, many-fangled government of that kind arithmetically possible? And if not, uh, what not? Yeah, but just in terms of the Greens again, as you seem to be saying, unless the Greens do well, Mm. the rate at which we're willing to change and to adapt for what's required in terms of the climate change will not pick up. Well, that certainly, uh, because that goes, their size dictates their influence in a positive government they may be part of, but their size also dictates the viability of that alternative government. So if Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael, the winner of that competition has a number of seats in the low 50s, as distinct from the high 50s. And the Greens do well, but not quite well enough. And Labour are there about on six, seven or eight seats. And then you're looking for anything and everyone else to add on to that to try and get 80. At the very best, it's a house of cards. Um, it may not even be, be possible at all. Now, if the larger of the two big party wins a number of seats in the high 50s, and the Greens win two or three more, and Labour wins one or two more, then the dynamic changes slightly from something that's really, really difficult to sell a tape and blue tack together to something that might have a little more solidity. Yeah, sorry, and just in terms of that makeup, it would seem to be, certainly the way things stand at the moment, that Fianna Fáil would be, one of the big two would be the one that would mm. possibly be the, the main party. But even if they're in the high 50s, Jerry, you're still talking, you're still... 22, 23 seats short mm-hmm. of any type of stability. Well, you're looking, you would be, and in that situation, you are hoping uh, that the Greens and Labour between them could put 20 seats together. So that goes back to your point, Mick, about you know how many vo- votes will the Greens get, how many seats they have. That's hugely important in terms of their influence and policy, but before, even before you get to that, it's hugely important in determining the stability and capacity of that government, which they would be part of, to get off the ground, let alone survive. And in a broader sense, would the showing of the Greens influence policy outside any potential government and, and sentiment even? Do you know what I mean? Is there a possibility, for example, if there is, despite what the polls may say at the moment, a relatively, a, a somewhat a green surge? that this would be an indication to the body politic, listen, lads, this shows we have to get serious, people need to shift, we have to start facing up to truths. Yeah, it would to an extent. 
Um, but unless the Greens are in government, I think you'll have more of, you know, make me good, Lord, but not yet. Uh, and there's a lot of that on, on, on green policies. So this government, to its credit, has brought in a climate change plan. It has, um, you know, cogitated in the abstract uh, a carbon charge plan. Uh, a very small first step has been taken in that direction. But the real action is for the next government that has to move this on from aspiration to action. And I think the action will be a lot more convincing and focused if there were Greens in government. Without them, I think it would be a lot less focused. Um, and, and I think that will be a key issue. But once it is focused, and once it starts to happen, watch sentiment. I mean, the Greens in government will be savaged. They will be savaged yeah, I have no, I think by they, various interest groups. Absolutely. So there are two Green TDs. Eamon Ryan, very experienced. Catherine Martin has had her first term now in, in Dublin right now. And is expected to top the poll, apparently, and, in Dublin. And, so. and seems to be well set and a very capable uh, politician. So they are two experienced TDs. So they get seven, eight, nine, ten more. I have no idea. Every one of the more they get going into Leinster House for the very first time with the possibility that their party is going into government with a vast majority of a parliamentary party that's never been in Leinster House, let alone in government, to implement policies which will have their name rubber stamped on them and which will instantly become deeply unpopular. And those TDs in those multi-seat constituencies will be surrounded and savaged by the vested interests, including the parents of the young people who are most concerned about climate change because they will be up in arms because... All goodness and all charges and all responsibility are always for somebody else, not me. Yeah, it's true. And when you put it in that context, Jerry, I mean, just looking at another permutation in terms of Sinn Féin going into government and Fianna Fáil, mm. Fianna Gael say they won't. OK, supposing we say that changes, the numbers dictate, etc. And yet, even this morning, Leo Varadkar was suggesting just policy-wise they are incompatible. As you lay it out there there's a suggestion that a large body of not just vested interests, but those within the majority party, be it Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael, would find those green policies to be incompatible with where they're coming from at, at the moment. Well, they, I think worse than being incompatible, they'd find them inconvenient. Yeah. Um, and I can see the Fianna Gael or Fianna Fáil backbencher going back to the constituency and saying to those constituents who are giving them an earful that this is green stuff. Yeah. You know, this is where that is coming from. Now, we're trying our best to moder moderate it, as, as you know. Uh, and, of course, if it was up to us, you know, we'd be much more sensible about all this. <laughs> but they they can't be reasoned with because they're nutters. Yeah. So yeah. you can you can, you can can write the lines already. You, you, you will have a distancing within government. I'm not sure it'll do the main party much good, by the way, but th that's the carry on that will go on. The interest groups uh, will uh, have a field day. And the general public uh, will always feel that responsibility is for somebody else. All in the context that in uh, European countries mm. in particular, they are to some extent facing up to the problem and we're still saying, sorry lads, we're in our own cocoon here. Basically, and uh, the problem is that we have obligations uh, that we have to meet, that we're freely en entered into, and which, by the way, are fundamentally right. And also, it's for our own self-interest, because if you look at our own economic crash, uh, there were two great lessons from that. One is that financial institutions need to be regulated for the future. But secondly is that we desperately need to widen our tax base. 
And that simply hasn't happened. And in fact, the, the basis of most policies of most parties in this election is to further narrow the tax base. So uh, instead of learning, uh, we, we, we are repeating, uh, you know, the cause of, of our downfall. And green policies widen the tax base. Uh, carbon charges, water charges, to an extent, and it's not specifically a green policy, uh, but, but, but local property charges as well, so that people pay for services locally, that, that these payments influence behaviours, right? Um, that that model of taxation, which, by the way, relieves the squeeze middle to an extent who are carrying the can for everyone, um, will be very difficult to bear. And also we have a huge outlying fact in our tax system. Our tax system is the most redistributive in the world. But nobody earning less than 18,000, 19,000 pays much of anything at all. Now you look at any other system and all of those people are paying something. And while it may be very small per individual, it's cumulatively not insignificant because for the Because the huge volume of people are, are earning volume, under that. And we've excused all of those people really from any contribution at all. And that's not sustainable, but nobody dares say it. Quite the opposite. An, an awful lot of parties are suggesting oh, that yeah. down... They, 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 piousness of people not paying tax. But that means that the same people who are most vulnerable are first to be hit when public services have to be cut because the exchequer is bust again because the model was never right in the first place. In other words, we won't hit you directly with relatively small taxes, but when the worm yeah. turns, when there's a recession, you're going to get it between the eyes, but it's not coming from me, Gov, kind of thing. Absolutely. And if you are a little better off and you have private health insurance, uh, and you're of an age where you are on the property ladder, you can escape a lot of the worst. Uh, but if you're not, God help you. Yeah. Jerry, on a different note, I just want to ask you about campaigns because th there's certainly a feeling, uh, for instance, that at the moment Fine Gael are in a bit of a bind. They're not panicking, but there is concern in terms of opinion polls, in terms of the doorstep. You've been on the inside in campaigns. What kind of dynamic is there that way if you feel, for example, that uh, things may be going against you or, or going for you or, or, or whatever? Being at the eye of the storm, well, mm. it's a storm within a bubble, I suppose, but anyway, a media bubble, what have you, but what is the dynamic there? Well, I was in three campaigns, uh, two, uh, 1997, 2002 and 2007. And the first one, I had the the, the, bless, the, the benefit of complete ignorance, uh, which is great, I have to say. Uh, and it also w w was uh, quite a well-run, successful campaign. But it was one fought against the then Rainbow government, which was very popular. We forget that now. That the Rainbow, Rainbow government was very popular. was very popular. It had no particular issues. It hadn't done anything particularly wrong. And in the end, Fianna Fáil, by dint of a much, much better election campaign, outran them by a hair's breadth, uh, put together a government uh, in the summer of 97 that was uh, prophesied not to last till Christmas. It lasted five years and then there was another five and the rest, the rest is history. So that was fairly, uh, it was a very well-planned campaign and it was just implemented day in, oh, day out. Very well done. And then in 2002, uh, we had the wind at our back. Fine Gael had a very bad campaign. Michael Noonan just didn't click with the people and the campaign was awful. And But when you're in those campaigns, successful as they were at the time, you are gripped by paranoia. Do you have a sense, for example, uh, uh, oh, Tuesday, obviously, yeah. would you have a sense in the middle that, listen, lads, we're flying here, or, or 
do, well, or do you try not to let any yeah, my, my, my sense of that, of those campaigns, those successful campaigns, is you are living on the seat of your pants because this is just one stupid thing from going disastrously wrong. Yeah. And uh, so some people may get the hubris, I get the wobbles. Uh, I always believe everything is just one thing away from disaster. Which is a good way to be yes. when you're in the middle and, of it. And, 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 you know, we're having a single vote, yes, and uh, and also my job is on the line and we'll all be kicked out in infamy <laughs> and blamed. And uh, so, you know, par- I think paranoia is, is, is a great uh thing in, in these campaigns. Then in 2007, most of it was an unmitigated disaster. That's, that's the interesting because that's yeah. the one comparisons mm. are made. I don't know whether they're valid or not mm. at the moment with Fine Gael going for a third term, initially mm. getting off to a bad start, yeah. etc. All that was there in 07. It was and uh, people were heartily sick of Fianna Fáil and government really determined to get rid of them. Uh, the poll numbers at that stage, I think they sank to the low 30s, which in historic terms People would laugh at that now. But in that context at that time, it was awful. And the Fianna Fáil campaign office was christened Meltdown Manor in, in the media. And uh, there certainly was a bit of wobbling. And because Bertie Hearn was clearly coming to the end of his term as leader, a lot of people were looking over his shoulder uh, at what might be next to reposition themselves. A lot of people internally. Internally, yeah. yeah. No, you could feel it. Not only could you feel it, you could see it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it didn't, didn't take any deep intelligence, you know. So uh, the, the the internal politic uh, thing was, was, you know, disintegrating to, to, to an extent. And certainly there was sort of plans to change this, do that differently. But I think enough people held their nerve that we just keep going. And um, we did keep going. And um, Brian Cohn got huge credit mm. for being central to. Yeah, there was there was a famous press conference in which Richard Bruton uh, was the Finnegale finance spokesperson, and Brian Cowan upended Richard and his figures, and that was one of I think three turning four turning points in that campaign. Another was Bertie Hearn's speech to the Houses of Parliament in Westminster. Another was his meeting uh, Ian Paisley on the banks of the River Boyne, which is hugely symbolic. And I think the fourth was that the furore about him and his finances, which was absolutely intense for the first half of the campaign, simply petered out. Yeah. What about the debate? Because I, I remember that campaign working as a journalist and followed him on the day after the debate down to Cork. Mm. And I still remember Wilton Shopping Centre in Cork. There was a frenzy around him. There, there was something in the air that said, this guy has turned the corner. I, you, you couldn't, it was nearly palpable, I thought. Yeah. Well, was that debate that significant or it, were, were it, things it, heading that way anyway? It, it was. First of all, things were heading that way anyway, right? And, but I think the debate was that significant, not because it turned the tide, but it surfed the tide. It put Bertie on the surfboard on the wave. I, I think that was its significance, right? A wave that was perhaps beginning to come in anyway. Just for listeners, he was up against Enda Kenny. Enda he was Kenny. definitely perceived to have got very much the better uh, of Enda uh, Kenny in uh, that debate. He did. And Enda Kenny, I think, the problem was that already people had looked intently at him over the past few days and were having second thoughts regardless, right? So this all crystallised something rather than was the event itself. And I think it certainly gave gave Bertie Ahern, I think, great momentum and and confidence. And it was a reminder of him at his peak. Yeah, and as I say, comparisons have been made because getting a third term is so difficult. But one difference 
is Leo Varadkar, and I think there, there, there's a perception that one of his selling points when he became leader was he was perceived mm. within Fine Gael to be the man who could win them elections, mm. whether or not that's the case. But one way or the other, he's facing into his first as, a, as leader, yet it's Fine Gael's third. And he, he may be, is, is that an advantage or a disadvantage? Oh, it, it, it is a disadvantage. It's unquestionably a disadvantage. And hence, Fine Gael are constantly talking about two and three and four years ago when things started to recover and they began to build houses and invest in health. They don't want the nine years referred to at all. Uh, and, and they're very anxious to talk in a much shorter time frame. So it is a clear disadvantage. Uh, people get tired and bored. And there is an element of Fine Gael being tired in office. People after nine years in office, believe you me, tiredness does, does set in. Um, and also your instincts become dulled simply by the fact of being in government. You become a little institutionalised. There's no question of that. Right. I mean, anyone in any job becomes a bit yeah. institutionalised. So there, there's, there's a bit of that about it. But I suppose Leo's problem is more fundamental. That This is, I think, his third... Uh, general election campaign as leader of Fine Gael, except it's the only one that actually started. So By that I mean is that if you go back through the time since he's been Taoiseach, this is about the third time the start was planned. It's only the first time it was executed. So if you go back to those giveaway budgets in uh, 17 and 18, they were all around the election campaign that was imminent but never began. The fact they were so flahulok undermined Fine Gael's claims for probity and the money was spent but the election was never had. So Leo's problem is, I think, that Just he... To get that you're, yeah. so you, you, you're suggesting that those budgets were done on the basis that there was a feeling that there will be an election Well, there were election budgets, yeah. yeah and, and that it never actually occurred. Correct. Uh, uh, two years running, yeah, effect. Because that bad Brexit thing uh, kept on interfering yeah. with our best laid plans. And that has yeah. gone to their and Michal discredit. And Micheál Martin, so money spent, uh, election never came, moment passed. There was definitely a Leo moment. Apps he would have swept the boards, I think, in his first 18 months. Uh, but Micheál Martin had a very simple strategy, which was to use time. Because everything tarnishes. And, of course, as time has gone on, Leo has tarnished because, you know, facts uh, are, are facts and the hospital waiting lists cannot be vanished. The housing issue, which will come right eventually, by the way, but obviously not in time for this election. Um, and those facts uh, have caught up in, in Leo. And he's no longer that, that gust of wind that was around him at the beginning uh, has not entirely petered out, but it's certainly diminished somewhat. Can you see within that... As, as has been suggested, it's nearly like people, some people within Fine Gael, I think, are waiting for it, for that turn, the way, the way things turn for Bertie Ahern in 07. Can you see that happening or can you see anything that might put a wind behind his back in that regard? It, it is hard to say it. Well, first of all, I think um, if there were to be a mistake on Fianna Fáil's side, it would be very helpful. Now, whether they're going to oblige or not remains to be seen. Um, but they, uh, you know, they'd have to presume it won't happen unless they get lucky. So what can Fine Gael do for itself at this stage? And there's only days now to turn this, at the, you know. If it's not done by the end of the one-on-one -on -one debate next Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, I think the time will have almost have completely passed, is to bring this back onto the economy and to make the case that Micheál Martin is the oldest of old hat, that he wrecked it, he's not the right one 
for the future. Um, and either they can do that or they can't. One thing that I think is interesting as well is that in terms of Fianna Fáil, it's all Michal Martin. He, I mean, he's front and centre in, in terms of other yeah. leading spokespeople. They're not out much. And, uh, you know, that, that is to his credit on one way personally, but in the broader sense of Fianna Fáil, that they don't appear to have people that they have enough confidence in to put forward in, in, in a sustained manner. It raises questions there as well. It does. And the questions are blindingly obvious. Uh, if they're not out, uh, it's because they're not wanted uh, by their own. Uh, and those decisions were taken very carefully. And it, it's not that Michal Martin has a monstrous ego. He's not Stalin. It, it is that they don't feel that many others are uh, fit for prolonged exposure in the milieu of an election. Which in turn puts more pressure on Michal Martin himself. It does, but it will relieve him of any pressure of obligation to his colleagues afterwards. <laughs> <In a, laughs> he's handing out jobs. He, yeah. it, 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 what yeah. do I owe you, deputy? Uh, yeah. F.A. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and not only that, if he does get into that position, it'll hugely strengthen his hand. Totally. Oh, yes. Yeah. And by the way, that internal ma- party management is always something that any party leader has their eye on, always. Because they're paranoid as well. Yeah, I should have bound to be. About what's going to happen after. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And you're always watching the colleagues, you see. Yeah. That is one other issue about oh. Michal Martin. You know, he was tarnished with the, 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 the previous government to some extent. Mm. To his credit, I have to say always, he, he was the only senior minister who stayed on, who didn't say he was walking away when it would have been much easier to walk away. He rebuilt the party. Um, but the, the uh, there's been suggestion that the, what really kept him there was the fact that there was, for a number of years, and quite possibly still, no viable alternative within the party. It, it's hard to see. I see several competent people, by the way, um, who I, I think can go on to develop and, and make a very good contribution. But it's it's hard to see an outstanding star uh, in, in the parliamentary party at, at, the, at the moment. Um, and I don't think the party would readily coalesce uh, around one. Um, there isn't such a figure. And also Fianna Fáil has something in the future it's never, ever had in its past. It has an untried, untested, never before um, implemented electoral college system for electing the next leader. Oh, in terms of electing the next leader. So that's something we've never seen before and uh, who knows how it would play out. Right. One other thing, Jerry, Sinn Féin, to some extent, Mm. to a large extent, the story of the election in terms of their surge, notwithstanding, and it has been pointed out, the surge has to be put in context. They've gone from about 13 to 19, 20%, but Mm. they were up around there up until Mm. a year, 18 months ago, Mm. and they had similar poll ratings in 16, even though it Mm. fell back on the day. Some people are suggesting, as you made a point about young people, that that won't necessarily happen now. Do you see a scenario, if the numbers stack up, that... Fianna Fáil are quite possibly more to the point Fianna Gael, may reassess their red line that they wouldn't go into coalition with Sinn Féin if the numbers dictate that that is the only possibility bar another election. Do you, do you see things changing there? Or I, I think it would be very difficult and of course you always read Mick and I, the Irish Examiner and our colleague Alison O'Connor has a good Column good piece today, yeah. on, on that today, uh, where she basically concludes, I think correctly, that not just yes is the answer to the question you've put to me. But what I think is, and I think this is very profound, is that if you have two large parties fighting over 50% of the vote, or a little more, uh, 
as distinct from two large parties fighting over 70% of the vote in 2007. Those two parties can no longer dominate government between themselves for the future. This is the last election that will be fought in those terms. And while partially because they painted themselves into corners, they cannot really get out of at this stage, partially because, as Alison O'Connor in her column in the Irish Examiner this morning points out, there are real issues around Sinn Féin still, if fewer than in the past. Time is not quite yet. I do think the real significance of this election in hindsight is that it will be the last one fought on this basis, essentially the same basis of every election since 1932, that the two alternatives are the mainstay uh, and uh, that... uh, in more latter years, uh, Sinn Féin has become a significant force that it will not be in government. I don't see those truths holding again for another election subsequently. And I think a lot of uh, independents and smaller parties to the left of Sinn Féin are extremely concerned about any Sinn Féin surge, even a small one, because I think it's going to eat and by the way, they think it's going to eat their dinner. And here is the deep irony of that. Sinn Féin has left policies to get votes and seats so it can then travel in a right-wing direction. Yeah, I, well, for calling myself tomorrow to the extent of how they're more a populist party, I'd suggest, than, than necessarily but if, a left-wing If their part. end game is to go into coalition with Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael, they know those policies have to be left in the bin outside the door. But they're eating up left-wing votes uh, to get those seats to make that move. One other thing in that regard, Jerry. Is there a case to be made, notwithstanding concerns that Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have expressed about Sinn Féin, that on the basis of how governments have been formed in the last 30 years here, that ideology has effectively been put to one side? You can go back to Fine Gael and uh, Democratic Left, for instance, or some might say even Fine Gael and Labour, to, to on the basis that, you know, everybody's in play to form a coalition if that's what the numbers dictate. Looking at it from that perspective... Is there not, to some extent, an obligation on Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael to, at the very least, say, we will sit down and talk to them and then, if our policies just make this impossible, fair enough, but the refusal to even contemplate talking to them, is there a case to be made that that's very questionable in, in, in the political environment we have here? Well, I, I think, more, again, more than being questionable, it may have been a mistake, it may have gifted Sinn Féin a little, because certainly I think Mary Lou Macdonald was able to pivot their absenteeism, which I think was doing them in badly, being absent from Stormont, absent from Westminster. I think that was becoming corrosive for Sinn Féin. And after the re-establishment of the power-sharing administration in Stormont, she was able to come back to Dublin and pivot from being answering to the Sinn Féin problem of abstentionism or absence to asking the question about why are Sinn Féin voters being excluded. And I think that has played well for her. Yeah. Finally, Jerry, put you on the spot. Tell me what's going to happen after the election. Government, new election, uh, supply I confidence. Think, I, I, I think if the winner of the big two is in the high 50s, something's possible uh, with, with all others bit messy, but possible. I think if the winner of the big two is in the low 50s, I'm not sure if anything is possible. And in that scenario, either because something is impossible uh, or it's just simply too difficult, would at that stage a Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael arrangement hover into view for discussion? A confidence and supply arrangement rather than a a coalition? I, I... well, let's see what Leo Varadkar wants to do in that situation if you were the, the lesser of the two. 
but in your opinion, if if that scenario did arise, it would most likely be that rather than facing into another general election with hands drawn in the air. Well, Leo Varadkar answered that question in the Virgin uh, television debate last night when he said because of the importance of the trade talks over the coming months, Ireland cannot be left without uh, a firm, solid government arrangement. So I think he gave his answer to that last night. Jerry Howland, thank you very much for joining us today. I'd like to thank JJ Vernon, our sound engineer. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Spotify or all any of the other platforms. And you can let me know what you think at mick.clifford.examiner.ie or on Twitter at, at MickCliff. See you again soon, folks. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, the Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.